This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is Dr. Julian Holt Lundstad. BYU Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience to discuss social isolation and loneliness. Julianne, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Professor Holt Lundstad's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, suicide data makes evident the extent to which Americans increasingly suffer social isolation and loneliness. Over the past two decades, suicides have increased 30%. They are now the 12th leading cause of death. As Professor Holt Lundstedt concluded last year in the American Review of Public Health, social connections increase survival, lack thereof, are a significant predictor of premature death. Last week, the CDC, after declines in 19 and 20, reported that suicides increased 7% in 21 particularly among those 25 to 44 to 48,343, returning to 2018, the 2018 peak of about approximately the same number, 48,344. Also in 2021, the CDC's most recent biannual Youth Risk Behavioral Survey out this past November found teenage girls experienced persistent sadness at least at twice the rate of teenage boys. Three in five teenage girls reported being persistently sad or hopeless in 21, representing a 60% increase compared to a decade earlier. The survey also found 30% of teenage girls also had seriously considered attempting suicide, up nearly 60% from 2011. Frequent listeners of this podcast are aware in June 21, I had related conversations with Brian Alexander regarding his book, The Hospital. I discussed deaths of despair in November 21 with University of Maryland's Carol Graham. I published a related piece in December 21, subtitled The Unrecognized Tragedy of Working Class Immiseration. And I discussed with psychiatrist Lise Van Susteren in March last year, related climate crisis health effects. And then lastly, recently, Six or eight weeks ago, I discussed with Susan Lynn related issues she raised in her book, Who's Raising the Kids? With me again to discuss social isolation and loneliness is BYU's professor, Julianne Holt-Lundstad. So with that, um, let's get into this. So let's let's just start with the sort of basic questions, although one can likely intuit. Uh, how is social isolation and loneliness, SIL, defined? And I have two follow-up questions. Yeah, um, we often use social isolation and loneliness interchangeably, and that's often because they can co-occur. Isolation um, actually refers to more of the objective, um, either objectively being alone um, or having few social relationships or, or infrequent social contact. Whereas loneliness is the subjective feeling of alone or the distressing feeling stemming from the discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's uh, actual level of connection. 
So, of course, objectively being alone increases our risk of feeling alone, but they can um, they can occur independently. So you can be isolated and not feel lonely. Um, you might enjoy that that time alone. Um, and uh, people can be surrounded by others, so not isolated and still feel profoundly lonely. Um, so it is important to um, distinguish between them. Um, I should mention that both um, are uh, significant predictors of risk, um, but the way in which we might approach them may differ um, depending on whether or not um, someone is experiencing one or the other or both. Okay, that's very helpful. Actually, for me personally, I, I can identify with all that. Let me, the follow-up questions are, can you describe generally the magnitude of the problem? Let's, let's say absent revisiting the suicide stats I just noted and the causes thereof. So the magnitude of the problem, the causes thereof. Yeah, so um, when we think of the magnitude of the problem, we can think both in terms of the, um, the prevalence rates within society as well as the seriousness of the consequences of it. And so we do have um, good evidence um, that a significant portion of the population is either, either isolated or lonely or both. Um, uh, these prevalence rates range anywhere from about 20% to, um, in some cases, over 60%. Uh, these range um, simply because some surveys look at any level of loneliness and others may look at more severe levels of loneliness, um, as well as some studies looking at other indicators of isolation. Um, so these these um, prevalence rates may may vary according to how they're they're measured. Um, in terms of the seriousness, you you gave some um, important um, uh, stats on uh, suicide, but we also have very good evidence um, in terms of risk for mortality um, from disease related mortality and mortality from all causes. Uh, so, for instance. Um, in uh, my meta-analysis looking at uh, global data um, from over 3.4 million participants, we found that um, uh, those who were, um, that, that data showed that loneliness was associated with a 26% increase risk for earlier death, loneliness, or sorry, loneliness by 26%, isolation by 29%, and uh, living alone by 32%. They were all significant predictors of risk for premature mortality, and that was mortality from all causes. Um, so we have good evidence of, of the, the risk um, beyond just deaths of despair. And in fact, there's also um, good evidence of risk for chronic diseases, such as heart disease and stroke and, and dementia. Um, in fact, the American Heart Association recently published a statement on this, um, uh, on the risk, as well as a National Academy of Science expert consensus committee report that summarized these effects as being a significant public health crisis. Right. Yes, I did read that. So thank you. My, my, the second, the causes thereof was, was obviously implying uh, and and I, let's clear this up. There's a 
I'm assuming most people would assume this problem is largely the result of the for three years now into this pandemic. But as you note in, in your research, that uh, this issue or frequency of, of SIL uh, far predates uh, the pandemic. So it's not just unusual in that we've we've experienced this worldwide pandemic for the last few years. Yes, in fact, there was some there was a paper recently published using um, the American Time Use uh, Survey data that looks at objective minutes per day that Americans how they're how they're spending their days, and um, looking at this across the past two decades, uh, we can see that there were trends um, in terms of time spent in isolation. Um, time spent with family, both inside and outside the home, um, as well as time spent with friends. And what this shows was that there were increases in time spent in isolation, decreases in time spent with others, and that these declines were starting from, you know, two decades ago, um, so well before the pandemic, um, also suggesting that, um, you know, simply getting back to normal is not going to be enough um, because these were um, problematic trends well before the pandemic. Right. In fact, when when I read your New England Journal piece, which was out January 19th, my first thought was, speaking of two decades ago, you may remember in 2000, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, right? Mm-hmm. Which, was, yes. which was, you know, that's generally uh, discussed discuss this reality as the title uh, notes. Let's, you did touch upon, uh, and I'd like to spend a bit more time on this. In both pieces, you did discuss with a fair amount of uh, thoroughness the range of, of related um, health risks. And I have in my notes, and this is a long list, cardiovascular, uh, coronary heart, stroke mortality, as you noted, depression, dementia, infectious diseases, lowest functional status, overdose, suicide, virus-related viruses, and on and on. So to impress upon the listener, could could you say a bit more, particularly about mental health issues? Yeah, so um, we, we have evidence of the links between um, both, uh, so the extent to which someone is socially connected um, or lack social connection and one's mental health. And this can be somewhat, um, I think, um, complex for some because these directions are, are bi-directional, meaning that right. um, as we are more isolated and lonely, it increases our um, risk for developing depression, anxiety, and other mental health um, kinds of issues. Um, so newly diagnosed uh, mental health concerns. Um, however, among those that uh, are experiencing various mental health uh, issues, including depression and anxiety, that these can increase risk for becoming isolated and lonely. Um, and that these may actually potentially um, be somewhat cyclical as well and reinforcing. Uh, and so there is this bi-directionality when it comes to mental health, but it, it's um, we do have uh, some clear directional evidence as well that that simply being isolated and lonely can increase your risk for 
for um, depression and anxiety. Okay, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that point, and you did discuss that bidirectional and again in the annual reviews. Let, let's go to. Um, I should also note, sure. just because I think it's something that comes up a lot, is some may wonder whether there's actually a distinction between loneliness and depression. Um, I've, I've had people ask, you know, are, are we just simply talking about depression here? <laughs> um, and um, what's important to recognize is that while they may be related and can co-occur, they are different. And in fact, um, many of the health effects that I explained um, were controlling for depression. So these are effects um, on uh, health outcomes independent of level of depression. Okay, thank you. I, I do want to get into, uh, you have some policy prescriptions, particularly as it relates to, um, we don't, well, there's some lack of standard measures and we don't measure, so those issues. But first, let me let me ask, to what extent is this um, public health issue recognized and or addressed in the clini in clinical practice setting? So um, it's certainly becoming more recognized, but there are still, of course, important um, barriers. And in part, that may be due to um, lack of consistent um, education and training mm -hmm. and resources, um, but also, um, uh, you know, along the lines of resources, time, right? And um, of course, healthcare providers have many demands on their time. Um, and so if, if they lack the adequate um, training and resources to deal with this issue as patients may present um, with these concerns, um, they may be inadequately prepared to handle these concerns when they arise um, in a clinical setting. Okay, thank you. So let, let's get into some of the details here. Um, you, you do discuss, for listeners who aren't aware, uh, every decade HHS puts out uh, um, a document called Healthy People. The, the current one, of course, is Healthy People 2030. And these are these are goals, uh, presumably, that, well, these are goals the federal government is trying to achieve. So, for example, in the past years, they've had, well, Healthy People 2010 or 20, we're going to reduce, and probably a goal every decade, say hypertension. Um so you note that Healthy People 2030 includes a social and community context. However, uh, while the phrase is helpful, there's not a lot of reinforcement relative to what measures met, what so measures to to see to what extent we achieve uh, improve health through the social and community context. So my question is, what's the state of play as it relates to how we measure or even benchmark levels of uh, social isolation and loneliness. Yeah. Um, so um, in, in part, it's related to um, a few different issues. One is how how important and relevant is it to health and how do we measure it? And, yeah. and then how do we create objectives? And um, so we do have evidence that uh, these social factors are um, important predictors of health outcomes and to a magnitude that is comparable with many of the other factors um, that are currently prioritized within healthy 
uh, people 2030, and in some cases um, have stronger effects than some of the effect, um, issue other um, objectives that have been prioritized. So we, we do have strong evidence um, in terms of its health relevance and um, importance to address this um, at a public health level. Um, the one challenge that we have is that we need to have standardized measurement at a national level mm -hmm. um, in order to set these objectives and in order to measure them. So if we want to know if um, something is changing across the nation, um, we have to be have a way of, of measuring that. Um, and so there are some measurement um, uh, that exists uh, within national um, nationally representative samples that are publicly available that can be drawn upon to get some of this data. Um, but we've certainly made recommendations of how that could be improved. Um, and so improving that measurement um, and the comprehensiveness of how that's measured and the consistency of, of that measurement um, can help in these efforts. Um, but currently, we need um, more. Uh, we need core objectives in order to um, actually uh, make any kind of movement on this, or or be able to measure that movement. Okay, and just just so again, listeners are aware, you note, and I think both your writings that, uh, and again as a reminder, we tend to think of health status as a as a medical issue, but in fact, we know that. Uh, um, as you know, 40 to 60% of health and wellness is uh, directly or indirectly attributed to social factors. So just just to reinforce the fact that this issue um, is, is particularly important since, again, most of health is defined or health status is defined by non-clinical uh, measures. Let me, let me ask, um, you note that and this is the alphabet soup. Again, the you note that the National Academy of Sciences had a 2020 report out, uh, 300 plus pages. Uh, the World Health Organization, the CDC, the American Heart Association. Uh, of course, you do note as well, the UK government and the Japanese government have uh, minister positions uh, uh, dedicated to address uh, loneliness. Um, can you... Collect. I, this is an impossible, difficult question. What, what, <laughs> what, what do you tease out of all these efforts that is promising? I guess is maybe one way to phrase the question. Well, in part, it, um, so just for example, um, the 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 fact that the UK and Japan both have ministers for loneliness. Um, uh, what the US may need is. Um, leadership within, um, and I, I would argue both national as well as um, local, um, so whether that that's, you know, local, state, tribal, government, um, the leadership is needed in order to um, adequately prioritize this within um, policy and practice. Um, I can just share with you something that I think most listeners can easily relate to, and that is um, during the pandemic when we all needed to um, reduce our level of social contact, we saw how it impacted every sector of society, 
Um, we saw how it impacted education, um, uh, uh, workplaces, transportation, entertainment, etc. What that demonstrates is the social relevance of every sector of society. And so we need to think about um, how our existing policies, practices, to what extent are they fostering social connection? Um, to what extent might barriers exist to social connection? And we can begin to um, assess uh, how, how these may be um, contributing to overall public health. And so um, leadership may be needed uh, to, to um, adequately really evaluate these policies across settings. And, and this is true for both inside government and outside of government, of course. Right, right. I do want to uh, call attention to, and you do note this um, related issue, and that is the toll social isolation illness, the toll it takes on medical providers, clinicians. Um, you know, you cite, uh, you know, this is the, the burn, clinicians are burned out or the burnout data. Uh, they're depressed. They're feeling isolated. And in fact, curiously, a couple of days ago, I was on the phone with with a colleague, they are a um, they're a psychiatrist, and they they were pretty direct in saying, you know, they're they're suffering or have a sense of suffering, isolation, and loneliness, depression related. Um, so it, it's also affecting the clinical care community and oh, public absolutely. health providers. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it was interesting. I was recently asked to speak at an event um, for healthcare providers. And I had prepared um, my remarks about how they might address um, social isolation and loneliness um, with their patients. And it was interesting because in a preparatory call, the the organization said, oh, our, our... our providers are desperately wanting to know how to help themselves. <laughs> um, and it, it was um, an important reminder that, uh, that, of course, any one of us can be affected by this. Um, but even among providers, um, among leaders and workplaces, that isolation and loneliness um, can impact people at every level. Um, and as we think about trying to address this, um, we we can't ignore the fact that um, even even within the healthcare um, sector, that that providers themselves um, need attention um, because how how can they be expected to help others um, without um, uh, caring for themselves as well? Um, so so we can't can't ignore. Um, <laughs> that that segment as well. And this goes to the chronic shortage in healthcare workforce, you know, retirements, et cetera, particularly in amongst um, nurses. Uh, so certainly a, a problem we can't ignore in the clinical community. There are a couple um, efforts I'd like to ask you about. You do note uh, the Administration for Community Living has, a, has established this Commit to Connect, a national clearinghouse community-based interventions to address SIL. Uh, I'll name one. You also mentioned the WHO has uh, is health in all policy framework. There are others. Which of these uh, do you think is worth noting or mentioning? Um, well, they're, they're all important. Um, and 
the but they address it from different levels. So, for instance, the administration for community living are um, include interventions that are focused on older adults um, and and those with um, disabilities and and other um, uh, populations that have been identified as at, at high risk. Um, but don't necessarily include all um, people who, who may be at risk, including young adults. Um, and so uh, these are really useful for, for specific populations, but are also very individual-based um, approaches. Um, so focusing on helping individuals in communities locally. Um, whereas the WHO, um, their health and all policies um, framework is really um, focused on policy level um, approaches to addressing this issue. And so um, we really, uh, you know, from, from a public health standpoint, we also think about the socio-ecological model um, where we think about how individuals can, can play a role, but also at community level, institutional level, societal level, how how approaches at each of these levels may be needed because there are contributors um, to the issue at each of those levels. Um, and, and so um, to broaden our, our success, we may need multiple approaches. Right. This is a pervasive issue and problem. I, I did want to call out, and I don't know what work you've done or conversations you've had, but the, the healthcare insurance industry, uh, you note that uh, social isolation compromises, particularly uh, adequate uh, self-management. So we have in this country, of course, a, uh, an elderly population that statistically is, is, is has high levels of comorbidities. So their health status is largely the result of how well or not they self-manage their disease conditions. Uh, and again, if they're isolated or lonely, they tend to do a worse job. So this drives up health care costs and utilization and costs. Um, I don't hear anything, uh, and I, I'd love to hear what your sense is of where the healthcare insurance industry is. Yeah, um, I mean, we certainly um, need to have some kind of um, incentive in order for us to be able to address these issues. And, um, and of course, oftentimes that's driven by economic costs. <laughs> and um, as we are um, studying this, we are consistently finding and identifying um, these costs, many of which you just mentioned. I'll highlight another one. Um, there was a, a, a report done um, a few years ago that showed that um, isolated older adults cost um, Medicare annually um, approximately $6.7 billion annually. Um, and so um, as we are able to identify these, these costs, um, it may help us um, find the resources to um, start incentivizing um, integration within care. And of course, there is the simply the the potential moral duty <laughs> to care for individuals. Um, but the more that we can also identify 
um, uh, the cost implication that may help motivate um, some of the uh, um, in, insurers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're we're increasingly moving in healthcare led by uh, Medicare, the so-called market maker, to pay for value, pay for performance. And so you would, I would hope to think that connecting the dots between this issue and trying to pray your incentive a comment, try to incent providers, because at the end of the day, you have healthier patients, better self-managed, lower utilization, lower spend. Um, everybody wins. Let me Exactly. Let me, this is a sort of a formula question I ask at the end of the, typically at the end of these discussions. And that is for family members, whether, you know, regardless of age of, of their relatives, you know, you could say, well, you know, just say, well, family members who have elder elders or, or, or seniors in their, uh, in their family, but let's, let's not, uh, let's define it more broadly. What, what would you, as a as a student of this subject and ex, have expertise, what general comments would you have um, for family members? Because family caregiving in this country is, you know, we don't have any long term care policy in this country, so family caregivers, as you know, shoulder most of it. What what general advice would you have relative to awareness and sensitivity uh, towards understanding and appreciating this problem? So first off, I would. Um, encourage everyone to recognize that isolation and loneliness can occur at any age. Right. And so um, we may uh, perhaps be more sensitive to um, our, our aging and older family members, um, but there's um, uh, data to suggest that uh, adolescents and young adults have some of the highest prevalence rates. Um, so having concern, um, uh, really the, the concerns around, um, each, each of these different age ranges, um, there's also evidence to suggest that transition to parenthood may also be a a potentially isolating, um, time of life, um, transition, life transitions where we may move to another part of the country where we're disrupted from our, our, um, our existing social networks, all of these could potentially put us or family members at risk. Um, and as um, your question was on on uh, caregivers, mm-hmm. um, partly I, I want to say um, that some of the signs that they can look for is um, uh, any kind of excessive time spent alone, um, isolating themselves from others, that that can be one sign. Um, uh, a sense of feeling like they're, you don't have a confidant or no one you can turn to in times of need, um, that could be another sign. Um, but also, as you mentioned, in terms of caregiving, that um, especially um, where, where resources may be lacking, is that caregivers themselves, particularly um, amongst caregivers of, of family members that may have a um, some kind of health condition, um, that that can often be isolating in and of itself because you're caring so heavily for a family member that you're not taking care of yourself. Um, and so that can be um, another uh, potential risk. So we do need support for caregivers themselves. And in fact, there's evidence to show 
that caregivers who have greater support um, fare better um, than um, than caregivers who 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 lack that support. And you know, we do know that that is a labor of love, um, but that caregivers need support too. No, I I really appreciate that point because you're right, and I've seen the studies that caregivers. Uh, because the time commitment in caregiving tend to neglect their own health status, their work suffers, their um, their financial status. I mean, there's it's a it's a sacrifice that takes a toll. So I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. and their social life may suffer. Exactly too. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yes, because of the time commitment. So with that yes. Julianne, we're at we're at about our time. I appreciate this overview. Um, I'd like to think that now that you know, the pandemic seems to be persisting and that seems to be will persist that we'd be more sensitive from a policy perspective, recognize and appreciate and do something um, with this uh, issue of social isolation and loneliness. Um, if for no other reason, we're going to be living with maybe not just this uh, pandemic, but others um, down the road. So thank you again for your time. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to help um, share some of this information. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.